0: Hello and welcome to Bringing Design Closer. My name is Gerry Scullion and I'm a service designer and founder of This Is HCD, and CEO of This Is Doing, a live class design and innovation company providing training in the skills of service designers, design researchers, product managers, user experience designers and much, much more. In this episode, I speak with Bulani Mfako, a South African asylum seeker and activist based in Ireland, and he's a spokesperson for Massey. The movement of asylum seekers in Ireland and as an active voice in shedding light from within one of Ireland's direct provision centres, Knocklesheen, in County Limerick. Now, to give some context to this direct provision scheme, in 1991 only nine people sought asylum in Ireland compared to 3,883 in 1997. Now, this caused alarm to the Irish and the Irish government at the time. But rather tackle and provide a safe refuge for these people who are vulnerable, they created a scream, to detract or reframe with the Irish and to quote, social welfare system was in some way attracting asylum seekers to this state. Now, some people listening may also ask how this topic is related to design and it is absolutely interrelated. The awful experiences that Bulani and the thousands of people in the direct provision centres are facing are a direct result of a system that was created by the Irish government in 1997. These experiences were not designed, or if they were designed, they weren't designed to appeal. Now this episode is an example of a system that was not created from a human-centred design perspective, not in the slightest. As an Irish person, I am extremely embarrassed that this scheme is still in existence. And uh, even though an updated new Irish government has committed to dissolving direct provision, we discuss in this episode what that might look like with Bulani. Now as you'll hear, Bulani is a remarkable person. He's easily one of my favourite guests and deserves so much more and so much better than he is being given. Now, I'll place links to Massey and also links to Bilani and his Twitter um, in the show notes, but I'll also place a direct access to Bilani's PayPal account, so if you would like to donate some money towards him. Now, I should also point out that there are topics in this episode that may trigger, such as sexual violence, but let's get straight into this episode. Bilani and Faco, a very warm welcome to Bringing Design Closer. How are you?
1: I'm very good, thanks, and thank you for having me.
0: Man, absolutely no problem. As you we were saying beforehand, the reason why we're both free at this time was design politics was meant to be happening right at this moment. You were meant to be delivering a keynote in person in Dublin on stage. But thanks to the wonderful COVID-19 that wiped out all our dreams for this year, but hopefully maybe next year when we get to do that, we will have you back.
1: Yeah, yeah, COVID cancelled quite a lot of things. I thought I would have a busy year, but we are halfway. Busy. There's nothing moving.
0: It's such a rude virus, you know, it's yeah. just really, it's it's so inconvenient for everyone, like, you know. Yeah. But for anyone who who doesn't know Bulani, in fact, he was one of our keynote speakers. And Bulani is an activist and he's uh, an integral part of the Massey movement in Ireland, which is the movement of asylum seekers. And today we're just going to have a chat about direct provision and understand what it is and how this came about. but before we get into that, Bulani, maybe tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and where you're from
1: I come from the Republic of South Africa I was born in the eastern Cape of South Africa and grew up in a the rural part of the the country It's very remote that it took me about eight hours or so to go from Cape Town to my village. That's where, yeah. And you can only get there by bus. You can't fly the the airport. The nearest airport is usually closed um, or doesn't have any flights from Cape Town. So it was a bit, uh, it's funny when we got uh, the first case of COVID-19 in in South Africa, like, oh, yeah, yeah, no. Our parents will be safe in rural villages because it's very remote. Nobody's going to get there with Corona. But unfortunately, it did happen. A few people uh, who lived in cities, as soon as it was announced that there will be a lockdown, they traveled Mm. back to to their villages and some of them traveled with uh, COVID-19. And that was the terrible part. But I grew up in, in, in a rural part until 2001 when I moved to Cape Town spent most of my adult life in Cape Town, openly gay men, uh, which is one of the reasons why I left my country, because a lot of LGBT plus people are targeted uh, for either rape. If you are a lesbian woman, they call it corrective rape, where they target uh, lesbian women and rape them. Um, and then you face similar, or even beatings or death, if you're an openly mm. gay person, depending on which part of the country you lived in and what your social economic circumstances wow. are. Um, so from 2015, I would have come to Ireland.
0: Yeah, well, that's just so, so uh, it's just such a brutal story. You know, you, you recounted a story of living on a road where. Yeah, a lesbian woman was murdered. Yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously that that has a traumatic effect on you.
1: It is because she wasn't the only, she wasn't the first person to be murdered uh, in that manner. And she and I would have lived, she lived down the road from where I lived and she was Mm -hmm. the only openly gay woman in the street and I was, uh, there were two other openly gay people which was me and another young man who lived on the same street. And when she was abducted, this would have happened in December of 2016. I learned about Mm -hmm. it when I traveled to South Africa in 2017, January 2017, and I heard that she was abducted from her house and she was shot dead in an open field, like an execution kind of thing. And it was awful, awful for she had just started living with somebody else, her partner, and the partner only survived because she was hiding in the bed. Um, wow. She was hiding in the bedroom. That's the only reason she survived. Uh, otherwise, she would have also been murdered in that scene. And it
0: is—it's
1: it, quite awful when you live there because you, mm. when you read something like that, you see it in the news or you hear that somebody who lives down the road was murdered because mm. of her sexual orientation. You kind of think, well, yeah. next, like,
0: yeah, yeah, and yeah, no, absolutely. It's—it's just—it's a—it's a, it's a brutal—a brutal story and. You know, from when you hear, heard that story and, you know, obviously that has an effect in you. You're like, well, I could be next, as you said. No. What, what were the steps between then and becoming an asylum seeker in, in Ireland?
1: It took me uh, four days to get the flight. I was in South Africa uh, back when I had about air passing. I knew somebody had been murdered. I just didn't mm. know it was somebody that lived there. I would have read it when I was in Dublin still. But I didn't yeah. know that it was somebody who lived actually that close to where I lived. Yeah. Um, so when I got uh, to Cape Town and I had it, and I was like, "Okay, this is it." I, I had I had my suitcases and I didn't even unpack. <laughs> I was like, "Okay, then <laughs> the, the next available flight is mine, and I'm going back to Dublin, and I'm never coming back to this place." I remember sitting down with my little brother. I hadn't seen him for about two years, and. He was asking me about, we were talking about life. He had left South Africa for the United States for about a year coaching and then went back to Cape Town and he was telling me how different it was going back to Cape Town because his attitude had changed dramatically. Like he got on to a train in Cape Town with his, and took out his laptop and was busy working in the train. was like, are you insane? We were, he was actually robbed because somebody followed him from the train station. As soon as he got out of the train, they followed him and, and they took his train. I was like, well, were you insane? Why did you do that? No, we don't do that. He was like, well, in New York, that's what I would have done. Um, in any other part yeah. of the United States, that was, I would have, uh, would have done something well like you in South Africa. And yeah. we were then just recounting our experiences of the trauma of having to live in in Cape Town, where you have to literally watch your back all the time. Um, And that was it for me. I was like, I don't want to just survive. I want to live. Um, And to live, I need to leave the country.
0: Yeah. So you've been in Ireland for about five years, and you're currently living in Limerick in one of the direct provision centers. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. I'm in nucle It's a state-owned one. It's one of the few that are owned by the Irish government. It's operated privately by Aramark. It's been in operation mm-hmm. for about 19 years. I mean, one of the rooms actually now, the, it's called the relaxation room. It's, uh, how big is it? It's not that big, but it has two couches and a rocking chair. I'm sitting on the rocking chair. Uh, but other than that, we'd have to. Uh, we, the rooms would normally. It's built with prefabs, so it's like cardboard kind of thing. When you bang against the wall, it's like the same material that's used to build. What else do they build it in? It's not even it a quality. It's Yeah, it's prefab kind of building. Um, yeah, and they would have like six blocks, and four of them are occupied by single men and then the two would be occupied by single women and uh, families. So it's a mixed centre. Some centres would be only for men, but as we know from past experience, that there was a a transgender woman who was forced to live in a a provision centre that's meant for men only. That was in Galway. So it's never really for men only. Uh, It depends on the bigotry of the Irish state. We've had uh, situations where a direct provision center where we thought it was only for men had four women, for instance, with sharing the space with over a 100 uh, single men. Mm. Um, so you can imagine the experiences of women in that environment. Because We know from uh, 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 even centers where there is actually a good mix of the population is have a good number of single women, single men families and children, that single women tend to experience harassment because they are assumed to be available if they are single. Whereas if you were married and had your husband there, nobody would bother you. Um, so yeah. you can imagine then the experience of being four single women in a direct provision center with over a hundred single men. Um, it's Almost like harassment on a daily basis. Like.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. So for our listeners who don't know what direct provision is, Tell us a little bit about it. I know it's 20 years old, and I don't mean to sound like that's a good thing that it's 20 years old. (laughs) Let's talk about what direct provision is.
1: When a person claims asylum, in most countries, there would be some sort of reception uh, system Mm -hmm. in place and the reception system involves two parts one is the administrative part so the actual filling in the asylum claim form and making sure that you submit uh the the uh, the, the claim form to and submit to the processes of having to assess your asylum claim. So that may mean being invited to an interview and that sort of thing. In some countries in the global South, the asylum process only involves that part, the administrative part. So if you claimed asylum in South Africa, the only thing you, the state would do for you is just process the asylum claim. Uh, so you submit your form and nobody cares where you live Uh, nobody cares what kind of uh, circumstances you'll be like as long as the form is submitted that's it the south african state is done with you they'll give you your asylum permit to stay in the country which allows you to work if you get sick they'll tell you that you can go to a hospital like anybody else but that's just it there is no uh, material provisions whereas in most developed countries there is a reception system that entails the provision of material supports. So, for example, if you claim asylum in Ireland or Sweden or Germany, the state commits to provide you with shelter, food, um, and your everyday needs while uh, your asylum claim is being processed because there would be restrictions in terms of entering the labour market. For instance, you are not allowed to work immediately when you claim asylum in Ireland. You will wait for nine months before you are allowed to work and you'll only be allowed to work after nine months if you have not had a first instance decision. Before 2017, uh, Ireland was one of the few countries in the EU who banned asylum seekers from ever working until the determination of their asylum status. So you weren't allowed to work at all. So before that, um, asylum seekers would have spent about five to ten years in uh, asylum reception centers, which we call direct provision centers, waiting for asylum decisions not being allowed to work, and they would have gotten a weekly allowance of 1910. It was increased to 2160, and then from 2160 it was now increased. It's currently at 3880 per week that yeah. each adult would get, and so that's the spending money. It's just about five €5.50 or something like that per day. That an asylum seeker would receive when, uh, in what the Taoiseach or the Irish Prime Minister calls Mm -hmm. spending money. Um, It's deeply infantilizing because you are not expected to do anything except wake up go to for your breakfast, your lunch, and your dinner in the canteen. In most direct provision centers like the one I live in, we are not allowed to work. So you can imagine at Christmas time, families would ordinarily be preparing their Christmas meals, but here we're not allowed to work, so we'll have to eat whatever the managers uh, or the staff decide. It's usually a cold uh, Christmas supper anyway. That's served at 12, and you can eat it later on. It's served at 12 because the staff need to go home to cook for their own families and have proper Christmas yeah. Um So most people would have spent quite a number of years in direct provision, not being allowed to work, uh, not having any agency over their, their bodies uh, or themselves. Like you don't get to decide what to, to do. Your life everyday life is very restricted in terms of what you can do based on where you are located but also based on the fact that you cannot work and so you can imagine when you have children uh, it means you won't be able to work and provide uh, for your children's material needs, you will be dependent on what the state provides and what the members of the public who donate things to direct public yeah. centers provide so you have instances where uh, the mothers with infants were left with no net and baby formula and having to beg Irish people to go and drop off Mm -hmm. nappies and uh, baby formula, for instance. Um, So, the process itself, uh, direct provision has been criticized by numerous uh, human rights bodies um, and people who live in direct provision, Um, like the UN, for instance, there's two committees in the UN, one on economic and social political rights, criticizes the violation of human rights because you strip people of their dignity when you don't allow people to work and live independently. Um, It's almost like you're treated like a prisoner except that the gate is open for you to go to wherever you want to go. But if you do not come back um, in the evening, you might lose your bed. That would mean not being on the streets. Whereas if you were in a prison, you wouldn't be allowed out of the gate. That's the only difference between a prison and a drug provision center uh, is that you are open to go, um, but then going anywhere mean, will mean even further destitution. Yeah. So quite a lot of people would have? I think about sixty thousand people would have stayed in drug provision centers since its inception. Wow.
0: Well, it's it's it's. I know I've looked at the numbers. I know the numbers are going down, but in terms of people who are in the direct provision scheme. And as of, you know, I think it was three days ago in the Irish Times, they said that the next government that are being formed at the moment are going to possibly look at dissolving the direct provision scheme, which would be amazing. But what do you think that might look like if they do dissolve it? What would you like to see? Well, one of the problems with
1: direct provision is depression, because a lot of people uh, in direct provision centers get very, uh, would have survived or escaped traumatic experiences, deeply traumatic experiences from their countries, and when they are then stripped of personal autonomy and stripped of the right to privacy, for instance, their rooms may be overcrowded for single people, and uh, families would have to share intimate living spaces with other families and yeah. other strangers, and so... The one thing that we want to see is to ensure that the right to privacy is vindicated in whatever alternative to direct provision is implemented by the government. It must ensure the vindication of the right to privacy and the fundamental human right to dignity, which is, by the way, inviolable in EU law. But in Ireland, for the last 20 years, the Irish government has stripped asylum seekers of that right to dignity by warehousing them in direct provision centers to enrich their companies operate direct provision centers some rooms you can imagine before the pandemic we had rooms that had as many as eight single men in one tiny bedroom uh, cramped right. space with no space to move uh, uh, like you can imagine having to live your life for five years or ten years of your life yeah. in that cramped space sharing a private bedroom with uh, seven other uh, men uh, for about five years, you didn't have much of a life. Um, no. Like there is no such thing as sexual life, for instance. Dating life becomes almost an impossible. Like yeah. that environment for the next five years. So you're not expected to live. We want to ensure that whatever system is in place uh, defends the right to privacy and mm-hmm. the right to dignity. The other thing dignity, is, it, yeah, it also contributes to the person's mental health. Again, the EU directive on reception conditions for asylum seekers requires Ireland to ensure that the standard of living is provided, a suitable standard of living is maintained in whatever uh, form of accommodation is provided. So, the idea of having uh, uh, cramped bedrooms, for instance, is actually, it cannot be said that it upholds, uh, it provides a suitable standard of living for the people who have to exist in that environment. And yeah. that is one of the things we need to ensure that doesn't happen in the in an in, in an alternative to track provision, the congregated nature of track provision. We've had uh, one of the biggest, actually the biggest track provision centre is Mosni uh, which is a former holiday camp in uh, uh, right north of uh, Dublin. It it's it's, uh, it's like a massive ghetto because. There you will have 800 uh, 800 or so asylum seekers in that uh, center. Quite a lot of them uh, are in a better position than other direct provision centers because they have their own private spaces. So each one would have, uh, each family unit, for instance, would have its own living space that is not shared with others. Uh, But the problem is that it's a huge ghetto. We have all these people who are all migrants, who come from different parts of the world, speak different languages in one uh, little uh, demarcated area, who have the same income, which yeah. is 38.80 per week. Quite a lot of the, the families who live in Mosley Direct Provision Centers would have their own spaces, but they would all earn similar amounts of money. So they would have 38.80 per week, and they would be very restricted in terms of accessing the labor market in Ireland, even after getting their status we know from the Geary institute that migrants in general would find difficulty in entering employment and when they do find employment a promotion becomes another challenge so they may be underemployed mm-hmm. you might find somebody who is very highly qualified in their own country working for instance as a cleaner which is nothing wrong with a cleaner but there is everything yeah. wrong with it if you are actually a, you have a phd in a particular field. So you find people uh, who are teachers, for instance, working, uh, not working as teachers because they can't afford to actually go through the registration process of being recognised as a teacher in Ireland.
0: Yeah. So I guess just to go back to that, like there's a huge problem there with with integration into the Irish society and just in general, you know, from a human rights aspect and how people are being treated, and living in these spaces and in these conditions it's just not it's just not appropriate so like on behalf of my my friends and you know my my peers in the broader community, I want to apologize from the Irish people that this has had to happen. I feel somewhat ashamed that this has happened in our country because like for for centuries. <laughs> Uh, well, for maybe not centuries, but definitely since the eighteen hundreds we've gone to all four corners of the world of the Irish people and integrated into other societies so um it seems like we've we've missed a huge opportunity of having you know hugely diverse people come into our into our society, which is really needed
1: yeah so the problem the I just, problem I just with it- to say that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, the problem with uh, with direct provision is that when it was created in 1999, the mm. the idea behind it was to deter people from coming to Ireland to claim asylum, and that yeah. uh, uh, has that argument has always been maintained by Irish politicians whenever campaigners uh, are calling for provision to be abolished. Even as recently as the government formation talks, the Minister for Justice is cited as saying that if we improve it too much, it will attract, it might just attract economic migrants. So they admit that it is awful. Um, <laughs> so we'll treat you inhumanely if it helps us deter others from coming yeah. to, to Ireland, which is quite an awful thing for the Irish state to Absol- do. You do?
0: Because it's, I have to it, acknowledge it, it as well. Is super weird. Yeah, they, they've
1: gone as far as acknowledging it in court when they were arguing against giving asylum seekers the right to work. They didn't wake up and suddenly decide, because of the kindness of their good conscience, uh, they would give asylum seekers the right to work in 2017. Yeah. Before that, an asylum seeker who had spent eight years in indirect provision took the yeah. Minister for Justice to court for the right to work and won in the courts. Um, And one of the reasons why they won, the court said the the denial of the right to access gainful employment actually breaches the fundamental human right to dignity because it changed the man's self-esteem. It changed the way he looked at himself. He he felt worthless basically because he wasn't working. He was sitting and watching people go to work every single day, every day of of his life for eight years um, in limbo, not knowing when uh, he'll get a decision on his asylum claim. Um, So, for I, I think it has always been in the consciousness of the Irish state apparatus. So the political class knew for the past 20 years that it is actually awful, but they just didn't want to do anything about it because it was yeah. the most convenient way of deterring people. Um, that's what they think it does anyway, but it actually doesn't because Ireland um, is very hard to reach for people in the global south. You have to literally go through another country in order to get here. Yeah. The very few direct yeah. flights, and that's one of the reasons why Ireland has had low numbers of people coming in. You mentioned there yeah. that I- Irish people have gone to all corners of the world. There are 30,000 or so Irish people who call uh, South Africa home, and there are only about 3,000 South Africans who call Ireland home. So maybe we owe you 27,000 of us. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> the, the, the point about integration is that. For people to be integrated in any functioning uh, society, yeah. um, they have to be integrated into the social life of the country. They have to yes. be integrated in the economical life of the country by through work. Uh, they also have to be integrated into the political life of the country. Ireland does the two uh, brilliantly except for economical life, which makes it difficult to integrate into social life if you aren't working. Um, yeah. So they, they might allow uh, asylum seekers to vote, for instance, in local government elections. You can even run as a candidate if you're an asylum seeker. Mm. Uh, very few parts of the world do that. I don't know that many actually uh, who allow uh, migrants to vote. Yeah. But the problem is it's no good if you are allowed to vote if you actually can't work. Um, If you are restricted in terms of accessing labor marketing.
0: It has a huge impact on self-worth and being able to provide and being able to earn. And, you know, there's been times in my life where I haven't been able to work. And I've, you know, what's your current status yourself? Are you able to work? Because I know you studied in UCD for a while.
1: Yeah, I do have the right to work, but the problem with it is that it's very restrictive in terms of it's the permit itself, for example, is only valid for six months and it's given on a piece of paper. Other mm-hmm. non-EU nationals who are allowed to work in Ireland would have what we called then a GNIB card or the Irish Residency Permit Card, standard uh, permission immigration permit card that's issued across the EU. Um to migrants who are ordinarily resident within the in the in the eu who are from the non eu countries yeah it 's not given to asylum seekers, and that means that a lot of employers who didn 't actually know that asylum seekers were allowed to work when they first saw the work permit that was given to asylum seekers in a piece of paper they didn 't even know if it was authentic enough like they couldn't uh they didn't know it, uh, how to authenticate it because it's just a piece of paper with a lot of restrictions like you have to report to the department of justice that you are employing this person and you have mm-hmm. to make sure that at least half of your staff are from the EU um, you have to make sure that the what whenever the state asks you for a report on this person, you provide it within 10 days. Otherwise, it's a criminal offence. And so there are a lot of uh, things no. like that written on the work permit that deters, um, it makes a lot of uh, employers uncomfortable when it comes yeah. to offering jobs to asylum seekers. And the other thing is that it only restricts Asylum seekers to low-paid and short-term work because the permit is valid for about six months. Um, yeah, we've been campaigning for it to be changed to be valid for 12 months, and for mm-hmm. it to be issued on the same basis as other non-EU nationals who are in the state, so that there is parity in terms of accessing the labour market.
0: Yeah, I, I remember um, when I was researching, there was about twenty thousand uh, asylum seekers. In 1999, I think it was. And how many people are currently now an asylum seeker in in Ireland? In position?
1: It wasn't 20,000. I think it was 12,000. 12, I think it's the really highest like 12, number 000. at one given year was uh, 2,000 around 2002 mm-hmm. or 2001, yeah. and it was about 12,000. That's the highest number yeah. in a given year who claimed asylum in Ireland ever. Yeah. Uh, and. Currently, it's about 7,000 people who are in the system who are in direct provision centers around the country and Mm -hmm. uh, commercial hotels. They started using commercial hotels towards the end of 2018 because the direct provision centers uh, were full, were at full capacity. My center has, uh, the capacity is 250 people. We had 249 people at one given uh, point, and so that was at maximum capacity. Um, yeah. That meant that a person claiming asylum, in, in uh, arriving in Dublin claiming asylum, would be taken to a either a BNB or a guest house or a hotel, and the costs yeah. uh, went up exponentially. Um, yeah. For instance, the average stay in a hotel cost each asylum, uh, the, the state on each asylum, about €3,000 per month. Uh, yeah. On €3,000 per month, you could rent an apartment in, in Dublin. Course. And it's very yeah. expensive to rent an apartment in Dublin, but you could yeah. rent in the Grand Canal Docks, two-bedroom apartment for that and get change, you know. So for, for, for the Irish state, the policy didn't make sense to keep thousands of people in drug provision centers when you could provide support for them to live independently in the community and it would cost much less and also eliminate the human cost of drug provision because as you uh, mentioned that a lot of people would uh, be quite depressed when they are not uh, working and asylum seekers would be depressed not just because they aren't allowed to work but because of the traumatic experiences that people have gone through. Um, It's actually documented that one in every two asylum seekers Uh, in Ireland suffers from PTSD. So -hmm. you can imagine then the trauma of having to uh, live uh, or exist in a direct provision system with no personal autonomy at all.
0: Well, what I'm hearing here is like people have fled awful situations and there doesn't seem to be any acknowledgement in the fact that when these people enter our, our shores, that They've got trauma and they're carrying this trauma with them and that needs to be dealt with, that needs yeah. to be cared for and needs to be nurtured because it just manifests and yeah. there's a responsibility on the country that receives these asylum seekers to, to help them deal with that.
1: And it's compounded by putting people in direct provision centers because you know in direct provision there are different vulnerable groups like children, LGBT plus people, women, for instance. So you can imagine being uh, a child in a direct provision center. One of the reports that came out in uh, 2012, for example, said that uh, a third of uh, people who report to rape crisis centers in Ireland uh, t- were minors at the time of the assault. And these would have been people who came from drug provision centers. Um, and we've had reports of uh, sexual harassment of uh, single women. I, as a gay man, have been forced to share a bedroom with a homophobic man in a direct provision center because you don't get mm. to decide who you share your bedroom with. When my first roommate in Nakhlashin found out that I'm gay, he said, I don't like that shit. <laughs> Boys are supposed to be with girls. Like We were there, then we were like expected to share an intimate space like a bedroom um, yeah. with somebody who actually can't stand gay people. And I claimed asylum on the basis that I would be killed in my country for... For my sex, for no reason other than my sexual orientation. So you can imagine then the anxiety. Like my GP had to prescribe uh, sleeping pills, and quite a lot of asylum seekers are either on sleeping pills or antidepressants, primarily because the, the 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 inappropriate nature of the accommodation facilities that are provided for asylum seekers actually compounds the trauma that people would have experienced from back home. Yeah, um, and the only thing that the state does mental health care in Ireland would be once you waited for years and years for an appointment or months uh, for an appointment in the hsc's mental health uh, you then either get sleeping pills or antidepressants uh, which only serve to numb the, the the trauma rather than actually address the uh, to help you process trauma um, so we've had a lot of people in direct provision centers who either uh, end up in hospital in mental health uh, institutions yeah. or dying by suicide uh, is recently as April. Somebody was found dead in a hotel in a, in a, a hotel that was contracted by the Irish government, uh, the Central Hotel. Um, it was a young man actually? I think it was nineteen or so when uh, he was found dead at lunchtime in his uh, hotel room. Um, and it was said that he had died by suicide. And there are a lot of others who have died by suicide. Last year in March, uh, Mm. another young man was found dead uh, next to the direct provision centre by suicide. And he had only been in Ireland for six months. So you can imagine the level of trauma that people would have gone through um, in their home countries um, and then to be placed in a position where they are actually not being helped to deal with that trauma. The only one organization in Ireland that deals, that provides, uh, that is accredited to providing uh, supports okay. for survivors of torture, for example, is Spirasi. And that organization has been uh, calling out for more resources to be allocated to them because yeah. they don't have enough to be able to provide supports that is needed immediately when a person needs that support. So we've had people waiting months and months for appointments with psychiatrists and all the yeah. relevant supports that they would get from Spirasi,
0: for example. Well, it's definitely not fit for purpose. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's an awful situation. What's been the, I guess the, the the sort of feedback that you've been receiving from from the Irish, like on Twitter? Uh, that's how I how we connected actually originally. Like I, I was following Massey when I moved back from Australia. I was like, wow, this this I couldn't believe drag provision was still a thing in in Ireland because I actually grew up next to Mosny and I worked in Mosny, believe it or not, back in the day. So wow. I know exactly the rooms that you're talking about that those people are living in. And a ghetto um, was probably how I described it when it was actually you know <laughs> a holiday centre. So yeah. I don't know what it would be like now in in the current situation. It sounds awful, but when you when you're at in Twitter like. How have you been received by the Irish people? That's, that's something I want to chat more about.
1: Well, Twitter is a very different space altogether because on Twitter you get all kinds of vile people. People can be very vile on Twitter even because it allows for anonymity. Um, people can create accounts and not have any profile uh, pictures or name, real names, for instance. But it's been very different through the experience of going to towns. I've travelled to almost... Yeah. All the counties in Ireland. The only county I have not been to is Donegal and I haven't yep. been to Monaghan and I have not been to Waterford. Um which other county? I think that's just about it actually. Um uh, Waterford. I haven't been down there. I have a few friends who live there, though, but I'll make a point to go there. But I've travelled um to different counties in Ireland, go to schools, yeah. uh, universities, uh, community centres, and speaking to different Irish people. And quite mm-hmm. a lot of them are appalled by uh, uh, direct provision. And quite a lot of them are eager to do something about it and just don't know what it is. Well, the other thing that we can do is actually vote, use their, yeah. their vote. Even the threat of not voting for a candidate on the basis of their position on direct provision, we found that actually motivates the candidates to adopt a position that would yeah. uh, uh, see direct provision abolished. So we've done quite a lot of work in terms of building uh, consensus with Irish people uh, in the in the rest of the country but social media is a very different uh, environment altogether so you get quite a lot of support and you get quite a lot of negatives from social media but we've been overwhelmed yeah. with uh, supports that we've received from Irish people in general. Our uh, social media following keeps growing even donations for example I think in this month alone, we got uh, seventy thousand euro. That's correct. Uh, by Saturday, we had uh, just over seventy thousand euro donated. Um, in yeah. just in less than a month basically and ordinarily yeah. Massey is a, uh, a, a grassroots group so it's run by volunteers who have been who are asylum seekers or have been in the asylum season so some people who would have formed Massey would have left direct provision after getting their status and still mm-hmm. remained involved uh, but it's 100 percent voluntary so we don't have any paid staff the money mm-hmm. that we get with either be used for campaign work or to provide supports to asylum seekers. So, for instance, yeah. when we heard that there was a mother with triplets in the center that I actually live in, in Nokleshin we sent uh, one-for-all vouchers uh, just for them to buy material uh, uh, goods that they would need for the baby while they are waiting for their PPS cards, mm. which would then allow them to access the PT weekly allowance yeah. that they would get. So we got quite a lot of public support. um for far, for four, far, about five years now it's we are in our sixth year that we mass years was formed, and we've been operating on a voluntary basis whenever we call out for help from Irish people or other migrants who live um, in Ireland who support our work we get whatever we ask for. We resolved last year to organize a conference, and when we made that resolution, we literally had no money. (laughs) But we said we're going to organize a conference, and it was spectacular. We saw people coming together from all walks of life. Uh, We saw artists, uh, activists from other grassroots movements like Queer Action Island, Black Pride Island, uh, Merge, uh, which is the migrants and ethnic minorities for reproductive justice coming to the fore. Yeah. Even the students, Irish student unions, uh, both in second level student union and the uh, uh, third level, which is the university student union, were supportive of the campaigns and that will run. And trade unions, I have something to do with trade unions. Uh, this Friday, I think, I have to speak with trade unions, but they've provided support. CIP2, which is a trade union federation, yeah. uh, gives us their building Whenever we need a larger venue for or whatever gatherings, ordinarily you would pay money to use their uh, their building, but they've provided that support for us. Yeah. the yes. Yeah.
0: The majority of good Irish people are what I would call incredible, and I, I mean, I mean that I'm not just saying it because I'm Irish, but the the level of sincerity and intent uh, from the Irish people is really second to none. um when it, when it comes to the charitable uh, aspects of how we we live in society, we, we do dig deep, as they say, but, you know, I guess, what does life look like after direct provision? So say it was dissolved, what does it look like for Bulani and FACO?
1: Well, we envisage that once direct provision is abolished, an asylum seeker would not stay for longer than 90 days within a reception center. So there has right. to be still some sort of reception. Where do you go? Uh, because yeah. people would be coming to the country any, anyway, and some people land at Dublin Airport with nothing but the clothes on their backs. And mm. so they do need the, 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 the supports. Uh, but that, yeah. the way that uh, support is provided, it must be on par with the way the irish state provides supports for you for instance if you yeah. were to be homeless tomorrow or destitute yeah. or unemployed um, so we expect to be treated no differently to the way that the state would treat you because the the way the way that it works currently is that i as an asylum seeker would be immediately taken to a reception center and from there i would be taken to anywhere in the country in a direct provision center where i'm expected to literally wait Until I have my status, state, mind. Only then the state commits to treating me uh, on the same basis as you. What we ideally want is to move away from the model where that accommodation is provided by the Department of Justice. From what, from experiences Mm. that we know, the Department of Justice does not have the expertise to provide accommodation or to manage accommodation for anybody except for prisoners, really. Uh, because that's the only other people who are accommodated by the Department of Justice. Prisoners, Irish prisoners, are run by the Department of Justice. And so we want to move away from there to take the provision of accommodation for asylum seekers to the Department of Housing and local authorities, as is the case for Irish people and other homeless people in the country. The other thing that, that we want to eliminate is the profiteering through the direct provision system. So currently it's run for profit. A lot of uh, corporations like Aramco, who have operations in US prisons, for example, are also operating direct provision centers. And we want to eliminate that element of profit hearing because it allows for abuse. For instance, when it comes to the provision of food, you generally provide it in the cheapest possible form that you can yeah. do to maximize your profit. And you would warehouse asylum seekers in rooms. You remember the rooms I was telling you about having yeah. eight people in one bedroom. That means that the operator or the owner of that drag provision center gets at minimum, no less than 8,400 euro per month for that one bedroom. Wow. For wow. one bedroom. Because, On average, the spending on an asylum seeker in a direct provision center is typically 1,050 euro per month in a direct provision center, but in an emergency direct provision center, it would be 3,000 euro per month. Wow. for each asylum seeker. So you can imagine putting, and you don't get paid for the physical space, you get paid for the number of people. So you are contracted yeah. capacity. So, so we're putting uh, uh, people in, uh, eight people in one bedroom is quite profitable for those companies who yeah. operate uh, drug provisions, And we want to mm-hmm. eliminate that. The other thing yeah. is we want to ensure that the state imposes a statutory limit for not only stays in the reception center, so in the actual processing of asylum claims because people have been kept in legal limbo for eight to ten years in direct provision, not knowing that if they will be allowed to stay in Ireland or not. And we've yeah. seen people who have spent as many as eight years being served with a deportation order at the end of that eight years. So for eight years, you were stripped of your dignity, your right to privacy, you weren't allowed to work, you were literally uh, confined to... Poverty and degradation for eight years, and then the state suddenly tells you to sort of uh, go back to where you came from. Um, That's just cruel. And so we want to ensure that they impose a statutory limit on the actual processing of asylum claims so Mm -hmm. that you reach decisions on the uh, determination of the person's status uh, not only quicker, uh, but also in a fair and uh, uh procedure because we've had experiences where gay people for example are asked to prove their sexual orientation, how the hell am I going to prove uh, my sexual orientation like
0: uh, it's, I know I, it, uh, it, I can't answer that it's so, so silly yeah. it's so silly so like you know, ho- hopefully the, the direct provision scheme is is dissolved, but I would encourage, if there's anyone from the Irish government listening, that you, you take a human-led approach. You speak to these people who are going through the process and you include them in the process to design a more fit-for-purpose service because it's not about dissolving it. It's about creating something that's going to evolve and meet the needs and bridge the, and include them, you know, be inclusive in, in how you design these things. Yeah, it's yeah. just not a case of just ending the the direct provision scheme and and rebranding and it, relabeling is, it with something else. Something else, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's typically what governments do. They said, oh, okay, we've ended direct provision, and they just reproduce it and call it something different.
1: It's something different, yeah. And that's yeah. the fundamental problem that we'll be guiding against because quite a lot of ideas have been floated around on how the alternative should work. I remember one spokesperson for justice in FINAF Wall Party, which is one of the parties negotiating to form government, was suggesting something like foster care for asylum seekers. Like, do you not realise how infantilizing that is to have to pay an Irish person to look after an asylum seeker as if the asylum seeker is inherently incapable of looking after themselves? Like <laughs> the the, the ideas that are thrown around, some of them can be quite disturbing. They come from yeah. a place of wanting to care, but you actually need to sit down and ask yourself yeah. as an adult, how would you want to be treated Absolutely. if you were in that position? Like
0: let's see what Charlie Flanagan is like if we, if we stick him into drag provision for six months. Six <laughs> that, that, months might like, be too short for him. Just give that, him that two that years. Both, you know uh, what he uh, did. Do you know
1: what he did when uh, one you. of the, the, the TDs, uh, Fine Gael TDs, uh, made quite racist statements about migrants in the country, saying children as young as three years old were being radicalized in direct provision centers to be terrorists. Like, I'm like, and Charlie right. Flanagan was managing her campaign. There was a by-election. Uh, her name is Verona Murphy um, in, uh, I think it's in Wexford. Uh, where she was campaigning for election to the Irish Parliament. And Charlie Flanagan invited her to a direct provision centre to have tea with asylum seekers to cleanse her of her racism. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) that's the only time you go to a direct provision centre to cure your racism? Who told you
0: that it's going to cure your racism? (laughs) It's it's, it's embarrassing. So hopefully we're, you know, that breed of politician is... You know slowly dying out in, in, in government <laughs> because they they themselves are not fit for purpose yeah um, and it's it's not it's not cool.
1: Yeah, we've no, got quite a number of allies in in uh, who are coming through the dial Actually, even surprisingly, from Fianna Fáil, um we didn't think we'd get a lot of support from them, but quite a lot of them were supportive of our cause.
0: Yeah, well, hopefully, you know, the, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen marches in Ireland, and I've I've definitely felt, and over the last six months in particular, that there seems to be a lot more positivity and more action around the the massy. People are speaking about it. I you know. You know, a couple of weeks ago, my wife leant, leant over to me and said, Massey movement, is that because my wife knows you, even though she's never met you. She goes, is Balani part of Massey? And uh, I said, yeah, that's that's the Massey movement. And the mothers groups were circulating because we've had a baby, another baby, and oh. there's these, these threads of conversations about what's happening for young mothers in, you know, in, provision, in direct yeah. provision. And we're all putting together, like we're all putting packs together and sending them into the direct provision centers and stuff. So, like that, that stuff wasn't happening two years ago, but it's happening now, and it's it's part of the, the conversation. That I'm seeing in, in society and people are like, that's not cool. We didn't know about it. Yeah. Like that's what some people are saying to us. And like, yeah, well, it's been there, you know.
1: Yeah, quite so, a lot of uh, people are shocked when they hear the experiences of that. Absolutely.
0: The this can't happen in, in Ireland. This we shouldn't happen. Like, this is not how you know the the common Irish person would, would like to see these people. You know, oh, you need to be treated with respect and dignity. Yeah. It's it's just not what we're about. So Again, I said it before, but like you know, I apologise that this is this is the way this has happened. It's it's not the Irish way. Hopefully,
1: that apology to. will come from a T. Shark someday if they admit <laughs> their failures.
0: Yeah, I mean, like there is there's an admission of guilt there. I don't know, ninety nine when it was formed. Was that a Finnafall government? Was it probably yeah. it would have been? Yeah, Finnafall government. We'll, Coal we'll blame another anyway.
1: coalition. <laughs> well, well, the the saying is that Finnafall introduced direct provision and Fianna Gay loved it.
0: Okay, yeah. So it's 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 crazy, like you know, Blani, I'd love to have you back on the show in a, in a couple of months, just to just to check in and see how things are going, and hopefully by that stage, direct provision is a thing of the past. And yeah. I, know you, I know you're part of that process of not mediating with the government and, and giving feedback. Is that, is that correct?
1: Uh, they set up, an, uh, Minister Charlie Flanagan set up an, an advisory group last year, and there was a strong call from civil society for Massey to be included in that group. And so I was chosen to hmm. be the representative for Massey meeting with them tomorrow, actually. We're meeting via Zoom. We've had to cancel all face-to-face meetings because of COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, But it allowed us to meet even uh, uh, more regularly. We we used to meet once a month, and now we are meeting once every week, trying to produce a report, um, which is due for September, I think. It's due for September, and we'll make recommendations on what the alternative may look like. I'm not very optimistic, but uh, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. Like the interim uh, recommendations were very pathetic. Like the only difference was on the labour, on access to the labour market. Other than that, it was simply telling the Irish government to obey the law, like on bank accounts. The EU law actually requires uh, Irish banks to facilitate asylum seekers opening bank accounts because you would know, Mm. That many asylum seekers don't even have a passport when they arrive at the port of entry. And they might not yeah. have any documentation, for example. And how do they then open bank accounts? The law requires that banks facilitate uh, that uh, process that of happens. opening bank accounts. Yes, yeah. and it hasn't been happening. Uh, same with driving licenses and vulnerability assessment and meeting the and addressing those uh, exceptional vulnerabilities or material reception condition needs that people are identified to have been vulnerable when they are assessed has not been happening, which is a legal requirement, uh, but that hasn't been happening. And the advisory group recommended that it should happen. So it didn't address the interim recommendations from the group, didn't address all the the core problems that we have seen, mm. for instance, poverty, that children are forced to grow up in, in yeah. um, that wasn't addressed by the interim recommendations, so we'll see how it goes in the end. Yeah.
0: Well, hopefully, hopefully something, something good happens. Yeah. Bulani, it was brilliant. i put a link to your own Twitter feed and also to Massey in the show notes for this episode. Um, and if anyone wants to support uh, the Massey movement, I'll throw a link to their, I, I know they've got a, I think it's a PayPal donation, donation uh, link as well, So I'll put a link to that as well. And also to your own, I, I know you've got a, a PayPal account you can donate to, So be, which would be fantastic. Thanks, thanks again. So there you have it. That's all for this episode of Bringing Design Closer. If you like this episode, feel free to visit thisis8cd.com, where you can access our back catalog of over a hundred episodes with episodes related to service design, product management design research and much much more if you're interested in design and innovation training feel free to check out our business thisisdoing.com where you can join online classrooms and learn from the world's best design and innovation leaders join the this is hcd newsletter where you'll receive updates from the network and also if you're interested apply to join the slack community on thisishcd.com stay safe and until next time take care